0: Throughout the month of June, 3CR is running a station
1: appeal. We're asking you, the listener, to donate to keep the station going. 3CR
2: relies on the support of our listeners, but we know that many of you are doing it hard. So if you can't, we get it.
3: But if you can, head to
0: 3cr.org.au to make your tax-deductible donation to the 3CR station
4: appeal.
1: PCR has decided to close its doors to volunteers and guests from Monday the twenty third of march to Wednesday the sixteenth of april as we try to do our part in minimising the spread of the coronavirus throughout the community. At the front of our minds is protecting the most marginalised and vulnerable. But we are still here and we'll continue broadcasting twenty four hours a day with radical alternative content throughout this period but things will sound a bit different. Some programmers will present their shows on the phone and we'll be finding creative ways to bring you our regular programming. So stay tuned, stay safe and be kind to each other. That was the message for all of us in mid-March. It's now nearly mid-June and hopefully in the next month or so the station will return to normal broadcasting. It's been hard, but it's been rewarding. Many of us have acquired new skills such as recording and editing interviews at home, to be broadcast at the usual time of our program. Others hope to be back in the studio in the next couple of weeks. The usual June radiothon had to be cancelled, as it was not practical or allowable to have us all in the building. But it has been an expensive time so far, which adds to the usual cost of running this unique radio station. We are now asking people to donate what they can to what we're calling the 3CR June Appeal. I sincerely trust that listeners of this program who are able to assist in keeping the station operated in what are still very difficult times. The preferred way is to donate online via 3cr.org.au but if you are not able to do that, please ring the station on 9419 8377 those places again 3cr.org.au slash donate or 94198377 and thank you and now for Mr Kevin Healy.
0: A week, Jane listener when we experience kindness, humility, sensitivity and self-awareness from our big supremo Scuttle Them More Lash son and US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald Trample the Poor. Here, as Scuttle Them seeks consensus between caring employers and evil unions who are temporarily not evil, agreement on essential economic reforms like crippling conditions, work practices, caring employers and government call them, and in this case practices is a pejorative, it's there bad for all of us, like holidays, weekends off, nights off, sick leave, costly health and safety measures, That sort of minor sacrifice. And the biggest barrier this week to industrial reform, the boot clause. Give boot the boot, the better off overall test, because caring employers, know they can't do that which they exist to do, provide jobs and good pay for lazy, avaricious workers, if they can't make workers worse off. Because the need to make workers worse off is the only logical explanation of why giving boot the boot, not making all workers better off overall, is number one on this week's hit list. It's one of those mysteries of the greatest little economic order of them all that we just can't comprehend. Why we have to leave it to the experts who do comprehend that workers can't have good wages and conditions, the very raison d'etre of their caring employers, unless they slash their wages and conditions. It's a mystery, so I can't say it, listener, but they know. And scuttle them sensitivity and kindness. Well, we mentioned it last week, calling all parties, the government and caring employers on one side and evil unions on the other, to put down our weapons. A collective statement aimed at appeasing the evil unions who are the only party with weapons to put down. Because the government and caring employers, nah, they don't need weapons because there's no war to utilise them. Because there is no such thing as class struggle. So what a sensitive approach to the evil unions by scuttle them and can't understand all this criticism of Donald or the poor. He just can't win with the anti-trample the poor lefty anarchists and commies and long-haired greenies and worst of all, anti-fascists. People opposing fascism are the real threats. Here he goes to church to seek the guidance of the dear baby Jesus and displays his innate modesty and self-awareness, knowing that a man who believes indeed boasts he can do whatever he likes with women, because he's a celebrity they just can't resist, is not worthy of entering the church. And thus he stands outside, holds a Bible aloft, and swears by Almighty God he will unleash the vicious dogs and not-so-friendly trained killers on the lawless running riot, President Law and Order. And what thanks does he get? He's accused of a publicity stunt, that's what. As if a man of Donald's morals, the big supremo of the U.S. of, no less, would use a church as a publicity stunt why he was so intent on displaying his dear baby Jesus' humility, his sensitivity, he went to the trouble of having his way cleared by the caring, sorry, a constabulary, sort of the trample-the-poor version of John the Baptist with the dear baby, constabulary who were even forced to bash and pepper spray the masses on or not on the mount, including a true blue news crew who were displaying in turn their insensitivity by filming the paramilitary discussion going about their lawful law and order business. Uh, So you didn't go inside because you knew you were unworthy, Donald? I didn't go in because the light out here is better for the cameras, Uh, best light ever, ever. With Donald attempting to play the mediator by threatening wild dogs and bullets, perhaps it's time to explain the confusion of those people on the streets who think the threat to law and order, the criminal activity, was the catalyst for all this. Constable Derek Chauvin garrotting Afro-American George Floyd and not their reaction. When it's obvious, as Donald has made clear, the people protesting are the criminals. After all, the murderers were just doing their job. Another, sorry, did it again, maintainer of law and order, killing another non-white person by holding him down with a knee in the neck until he was dead. As we said last week, garrotting seems to be a popular police method of execution of blacks in the U.S. of, whereas in Troubluwazi, they usually wait till they get them in the cells, knowing that when an Afro-American or Terranulius person gasps, I can't breathe, he in this case, he is lying because you can't trust what these people say, unlike the truth we get from the responsible authorities like Donald. One US cop told the ABC that to be a cop, you have to love people, a qualification which somehow over the years seems to have escaped us, but we put it to the test and discovered he was correct. As we ran, you have to love people, Past a Minneapolis, Constable keeping Law and Order on the Streets, Constable Chuck Racistinsky the Fourth. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Without people like, you know, there'd be no one to, like, bash, no one, you know, like, to, to beat up on, to, to frame. There, see, loves people. Constable Derek Chauvin obviously overdid the love bit on George Floyd. Donald paid tribute to George Floyd's memory by declaring George would be looking down and thrilled at the latest U.S. of unemployment figures. They would make George happy, he said. Although I would have thought George would be a lot happier not having to look down, to still be unsafely walking the streets of Minneapolis. Time warning here, listener, due to the circumstances in which we're currently doing all these things, we're recording this on Saturday, so Saturday morning in fact, so it's sort of four-seventh of a week that was... The courts have ruled the Sydney Black Lives Matter rally illegal, and I'm sure with the rallies and the mainstream media attacks on them and three more days of Donald's rants, just explaining why no mention other than mentioning we're not mentioning. But here in sympathy with his US of colleagues, a copper threw a terra kid face first into the ground and got stuck into him for the heinous crime of... Uh, of of Oh, now what was he charged with? Oh, he wasn't charged, so... Why was he being arrested? His own fault though, because practicing Donald's sensitivity, the New South Wales Minister for Cops Beating Up Black said, there are levels of authority like these giant mine coppers who command respect. And we find it hard to believe, listener, that anyone would not respect great and much loved authority figures like the police and politicians. So it was the black kid's own fault that he got bashed for not committing a crime. Or, as the top explained, the copper had a bad day, and therefore, I never thought I'd hear myself say this, but but I hope beyond hope that all you coppers out there have a very, very good day. Uh, Why was it a bad day, Constable? Uh, Because the bloody, you know, like, camera was there. uh, I should have, you know, like, bashed that person and, you know, like, smashed the... uh... Well, if it makes him feel a bit better, the terrenuous kid had an even worse day, a badder day. And credit where credit's due. We've lived with the privatisation of essential services long enough to enjoy the benefits of government justification. Efficiency. Efficiency ensuring a better, better service and lower, lower removed from the bloated inefficient hand of the public sector with only the profit motive added to the equation. And we can but imagine how astronomical prices for handling containers on our wharves would be if they were still run by the inefficient bloated hand, because in the two years since state big economic guru Tim us the other one, told us how much we'd all be better off when he privatised our ports. Because even with the super efficiency of the private sector, a $3 something per container fee then has risen ever so slightly to $140 or so, a mere 3,000% increase in two years, causing a bit of a rift between the super ports private owner and the super efficient shipping industry and its super efficient customers. The Minister for Ports, and I'm not sure where we've got one, seeing we don't own them anymore, but she says she'll look at ways of controlling this super inflation. And just by the by, we might have thought they could have taken those little matters into account before they signed the contract, or even, dare I say it, not signed the contract at all. But no, no. The- It'll be inefficient and therefore uh, 3,000% in two years. Well, my word, the workers must have got a huge increase. In fact, they're probably the cause of it because the only other possible explanation would be a little matter like greed in a private monopoly. But no, no, that couldn't be. We can't imagine that. This super-efficiency, explains why the government is throwing billions at the private construction industry because it knows that if it threw all those billions at public housing, for instance, building it and renovating it, that would be inefficient. And finally, the super-efficient private sector can be guaranteed not to rip off the scheme, not be dole bludges. Good afternoon.
3: Mr Kevin Healy. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity.
1: To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Back in March, a group of people in PNG concerned about the implications of deep sea mining called on the government to cancel the environment permit and mining license granted to Nautilus Mines New Guinea Limited. The leader of the group for the Alliance of Solwara Warriors said that there was a lot of debate and opposition to the project since 2011, and with the project being declared a failed project, the goal was achieved and asked the government to go further and cancel its mining and exploration license. When Nautilus was declared bankrupt, p and was left burdened by a debt, having been persuaded by that company to invest in its failed project. And to emphasise the concerns of people such as those in p and other nations, a new report has been published to highlight deep-sea nodule mining, danger to the Pacific Ocean and island nations, titled Predicting the Impacts of Mining Deep-Sea Polymetallic Nodules." in the Pacific Ocean at a time when Canadian company Deep Green Metals has partnered with three Pacific governments to obtain exploration licenses for a zone stretching between Kiribati and Mexico, and there is increasing concern that the regulation could be pushed through under the cover of COVID nineteen, despite the absence of meaningful public debate. Dr Helen Rosenberg from Deep Sea Mining Campaign was a member of the editorial team. And asked Helen first, for those who might not have heard of the proposed mining operation called Deep Sea Nodule Mining, could she briefly explain the process?
2: These nodules are lumps of rock. People seem to like calling them potato-like. They do vary in size from golf ball size up to cannonball size. And they're really densely packed with combinations of metals, um, most commonly manganese, cobalt, copper, iron. But depending on the location on the seabed, there can be different um, combinations, and hence they're called polymetallic nodules. They occur on the deep seabed. So we're talking like three and a half to six kilometres under the surface of the ocean. They occur within mainly within an area of the Pacific Ocean called the Clarion-Clipperton Zone, or CCZ for short. And the CCZ is a a quite expansive stretch of ocean that that spans from uh, Kiribati across to Mexico. It's about 4,500 kilometres across. And in that area, there's a a band that's about 1,000 kilometres wide of ocean that has pretty much been put under exploration licence to a whole variety of companies. There's about 27 uh, licences that have been issued in within that band to companies from all over the world, from Europe, from Asia, from uh, Canada, from Australia as well, from uh, the Pacific Islands too. So it's... Um, a bit of geopolitical positioning going on perhaps there. You know, everyone wanting to just grab a piece of their turf and mark out an area to explore. Uh, the nodules occur on really deep sea plains. The CCZ, if it was on land, you'd see this uh, landscape of the mountains and valleys and and gorges and plains. And it's these deep sea plains that these cannonball rocks Um, A press and so on, occur on.
1: There's been one failed venture and that's Nautilus with its project. One that you've been focusing on is Deep Green. Is the connections to Nautilus with this company? It's quite interesting really because the Solwara One project was
2: as you said, um, was backed by and driven by um, a Canadian registered company called Nautilus. Through most of um, that project, there were a couple of fellows who were kind of key in ramping up the... It was a publicly listed sh- company, so people had shares, and there were a couple of people who were... And, and In particular, one guy who has a marketing background was really key in ramping up the share price. I mean, I'm not an expert in the stock exchange and share prices, but... It, It's a very strange beast and companies can make quite a lot of money and the personnel in those companies can make a lot of money without actually doing anything at all. So these two fellas, Jared Barron and David Hayden, they left the company Nautilus at the height of its share price and they started up this company Deep Green. So yes, there is is quite a strong link. Uh, What happened to... Nautilus. since that time was that the two key investors that were left behind couldn't get the finances together. It was seen as um, a high-risk uh, project by financiers and even by its single mainstream mining company partner, Anglo-American. Anglo-American divested from Nautilus as well once they were um, helped along a little bit and made aware of the risks involved. So as a result of that, Nautilus was declared bankrupt earlier this year. Uh, The two key investors in Nautilus, however, have created a a new entity with a different name, as they do, and we're not sure what assets they still hold on to because they had to sell a whole lot of assets through the bankruptcy Um, process but we think they probably still hold the licences for the Solwara 1 mine and according to their pretty basic um, websites they still intend to mine there although the signals from the Papua New Guinea government haven't been favourable and the new James Marape um, government in Papua New Guinea various ministers and himself have sort of indicated that they don't really see seabed mining going ahead in the foreseeable future. In fact, um, Prime Minister James Marape late last year supported a call by Fiji's Prime Minister um, made at a Pacific leaders meeting asking other Pacific island nations to declare moratorium on seabed mining in their national waters. So I think the fate of Nautilus itself, yeah, it's not looking good, but we're, we're, ourselves and our colleagues in Papua New Guinea are still keeping a watching brief on the company, that's for sure. But we feel that, um, you know, Jared Barron and David Hayden, they learnt a few lessons from the Nautilus experience. I think they learnt that it was a stupid idea to try and set up a, a seabed mine 30 kilometres on coastal communities. So they're now going for licences um, within this area from the CC, uh, called the CCZ, which is remote from communities. And they've also learnt from the scientific community uh, of um, deep sea ecologists that hydrothermal vents, which is what they were going after uh, in Papua New Guinea in the Bismarck Sea, which are these underwater geysers spurting out plumes of mineral-rich smoke that kind of settle on the seabed and form these these layers, um, very dense layers of mineral-rich rich sediment. That's what they were going for there. But the ecodiversity of uh, biodiversity of those areas is extremely high and there's a lot of um, very interested scientists there, so I think they learnt that best to stay away from hydrothermal vents. So they're going to go for these nodules in the in the CCZ and uh, have been really um, promoting them as dead zones. There's just these lumps of weird rock down there. They don't serve any purpose, and um, we're just going to clean them up. Like you know, no one needs them, and they're kind of you know. They're just sitting there right for the picking. That was the basis for us deciding to commission a scientific review of um, the literature on these polymetallic nodules and what the impacts of mining them might be.
1: This report is compiled by Seek De- Deep Sea Mining Campaign and Mining Watch Canada and supported by other groups, it analyses over 250 peer-reviewed scientific articles. Does that number underline the concern wide, worldwide of deep-sea mining, that there's so many? Well, it does sound like a lot, um, but
2: even though there is that, that high number of articles, the knowledge base is still very low. I mean it does indicate um, a high level of concern among scientists and interest among scientists um, as to what, what impacts might occur there but because the Deep Sea is such a, a remote place relatively few resources have been allocated to conducting field research there so what we have and what a lot of these articles as well um, rely on is modelling, making assumptions, you know, based on the information that is available. And I think as we all know from, you know, probably climate change modelling and, you know, other forms of modelling, a model is only as good as the assumptions behind it, the accuracy of those assumptions. And so even though we reviewed all that, that data such wide variation between some of those, uh, the, the research results in those studies because of the very variation in assumptions, but the consensus was from, from analysing all of those papers is that the impacts are likely to be long-term and severe and last for generations. Effectively in human time frames, um, human time scales, they would be permanent because these nodules take millions of years to develop and it's actually not yet understood why they've developed, how they've developed and we're still understanding what purpose, what, what role they play in the ecosystem. But we, what mm. is known um, from the, the research base is that they form habitat, they provide habitat to a whole range of uh, life forms down there. They provide um, places for immobile organisms to adhere to, the hard surfaces. And they're sitting in this soft, soupy mud. And it's thought that the between this hard surface of the Of the rock and the soupy mud provides a really interesting um, mix of habitat that supports quite a lot of you know different kinds of life forms, as well as so removal of those nodules that take millions of years to form effectively removes that habitat and the creatures that depend on that habitat for millions of years and uh, well it's not known whether they'll reform anyway so um, you know it could be um, even in geological time frames.
1: You're listening to Dr Helen Rosenbaum from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign and I'd imagine that being so far under the sea that those species have been just living their lives very happily thank you very much for a long time and they're not going to react very very favourably, to their, their home being demolished.
2: Well, deep sea environments, and then particularly on these abyssal, it's these deep sea plains are called abyssal plains, the environments there are really stable, totally correct, that there's very little change that occurs down there. And so they're not animals that adapt readily to change. And they will be quite badly affected by the mining process. What concerns us is not just the, only the removal of nodules but also the mining process itself which is envisaged to occur by these massive remotely operated vehicles that will be running over the seabed, compacting down the soupy mud. And collecting up the nodules so you can imagine as it's doing that the very fine grains of this souping mud will be suspended and we don't know what's going to be what's going to be contained in that those plumes these clouds of of sediment um, there could be heavy metals that become bioavailable um, that is available to be taken up in marine food chains but apart from what's happening down on this sea floor Another huge worry is that there's going to be some kind of pipe that the nodules are going to be placed into and they're going to be taken up to the surface. You know, it's a bit hard to get one's head around it really. A pipe that goes from the seafloor could be, you know, three and a half, four, five, six kilometres under the under the surface and a pipe is going to go all the way up carrying these nodules. A bit hard to imagine, there won't be problems with that. That pipe would be, you know, vulnerable to all sorts of um, weather events and storm surges, tsunamis, you know, all sorts of things, which are incurring, you know, increased frequency, of course, with um, the progress of climate change. There could be leakage, breakage, and leakage of this slurry with the nodules anywhere along the whole water column, going up from the from the deep to the surface, and. In addition to that risk, there's going to be some waste disposal. Uh, Once they come up to the surface vessel, there's going to be some kind of initial processing at least and then some discharge of waste water bearing sediment again at some depth. And wherever that depth in the water column is, Uh, It's going to be a continuous plume of sediment created for the whole life of the mine. It's just going to be like the smokestack pluming off. It's going to move horizontally, vertically and drop down again. And, you know, so many species will travel through that plume and be affected by that plume. The species that are already under threat, not listed as vulnerable by the IUCN and our report notes uh, a few of those such as the whale shark for example and species that are of high commercial interest and value such as the Pacific tuna fisheries. One thing that science is only just starting to catch up with now but Pacific Islanders have known for eons really as part of their culture and their connection to the ocean is that the ocean itself is interconnected. So what happens down in the deep will affect what happens in the midwater, what happens at the surface, and will also affect uh, what happens in reefs and lagoons. So it's very um, likely that through the, the currents and the transport of sediment as well as the migration and movement of species through these waters that uh, human health will be impacted, that those marine food chains could become contaminated and, you know, we'll end up in the tropical predator, which is us. There's really wide-ranging impacts on,
1: likely from seabed mining. And of course, this is untested technology, surely. Yes, of course. None of, none of it's been tested. Nautilus. Um, I
2: read a report recently that suggested that Nautilus, even though it's failed commercially, um, has left this, you know, lasting, valuable legacy for the. Deep sea mining industry because it was the only company so far to have tested equipment, but that equipment was tested in shallow waters. I think they got up to about a hundred meters, so, so and it spent that equipment spent most of its life in um, sort of sitting in a in port and just outside Port Moresby. So goodness knows where that rusting those rusting hulks are now, but. No one knows what really what's going to happen when those um, those large pieces of machinery are operating at the very you know highly pressure, um, highly pressurised conditions of the sea floor, low temperatures, different kinds of chemistry down there. So there's just so many operational risks, and I think the big difference probably between those proponents of seabed c- mining and those of us who are worried about it is, you know, I would kind of probably summarize it as the lack of or um, of precautionary principle, application of the precautionary principle by the, c- the deep sea mining proponents. They think it's fine to try it and see what happens um, because we're never going to know until, until after the mining occurs. And that's a point, a key point that we actually make in our report is that that indeed is true. We aren't going to know what's going to happen until after um, mining occurs. But, you know, if you apply the precautionary principle, the simple mm. approach then would be to say this thing should not go ahead. You know, the oceans uh, are already in dire straits. The... Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report on oceans and the cryosphere, our um, frozen areas, late last year indicated that if business as usual continues with the cracks on the ocean and the current pressures, the resilience of the ocean within the next 10 to 20 years is just going to spiral downwards. And that report didn't yet factor in seabed mining this is the context in which these cowboys <laughs> these cowboy companies who don't care about anything else except their own um, profits you know are suggesting that we go ahead and you know it'll be okay we'll monitor what happens afterwards yes there's a there's a very polarized debate about this, and one thing I'm pleased to say about our report is that it's it's sharpened that debate and actually um stirred up quite a lot more people to enter into the debate and, the, the and have a think about seabed mining.
1: Is there also polarised thinking amongst the people in the Pacific nations? There is, in fact, um,
2: there are uh, several countries, and they, you know, their governments at least, have entered into contracts with um, three of them, with the one company, this deep green... Metals, who has that link to the failed Nautilus Solwara One project? Kiribati, um, Nauru, and Tonga have arrangements with Deep Green to mine these nodules in the CCZ plains. Uh, Cook Islands has formed its own state-owned company and has also entered into an agreement with a Belgian company to mine in the CCZ, but are also looking to mine their own national waters they have nodules in their national waters and um, while the government is doing that civil society in those countries aren't in agreement. There, There hasn't been open discussion in those Pacific Island communities about whether this is a good way to go for them and these are communities that depend on Marine based tourism, on their fisheries industries. So it's created quite a lot of conflict already, even before it started, between governments and their populations, and also um, possibly between governments, because as I mentioned earlier, the Fiji, Papua New Guinea, and Vanuatu governments supporting a moratorium and, and, and encouraging other Pacific Island countries to declare moratorium in their national waters for seabed mining. So you've got them on the one hand and then on the other hand you have um, these countries who have entered into the contracts. Whatever these other countries do, even if it's in the CCZ and isn't in their own national waters and closer to their neighbours, it will eventually affect the whole region through the connectivity you know, what's called the transboundary sort of effects of pressures, human-induced pressures.
1: You've called the report predicting the impacts of mining deep sea polymetal nodules in the Pacific Ocean. It's been out for about a week now. What responses have you had? been out for less than a week, actually.
2: Well, we have had um, a response from, well, not directly to us, but a kind of published response from the government of the Cook Islands, um, which we're looking into um, more carefully. And their reaction, I I don't think they've really uh, addressed the content and the substance of our report, but their reaction has been to urge other Pacific Island nations to really get into seabed mining because... This pandemic, the COVID virus, has shown how we can't rely on tourism for an income. So, you know, we need to get into seabed mining for a secure income. That's been one form of um, of response. And uh, there is active, and, you know, an active civil society in the Cook Islands. And um, I'm sure they'll um, they'll engage in discussion with their government about that. There's also there's been various other responses with uh, people who researchers who kind of sit on the fringes of the the mining companies and are contracted in various ways to the mining companies or just seem to be enthusiasts for seabed mining, just reiterating their points of view, again not engaging with the substance of our report now is how do we uh, actually engender a conversation about this because what, what our report calls for in the end is that there should be a precautionary approach applied because there's so many uncertainties associated with the impacts but what we do know and what we can say with a high level of certainty is bad news. So we're we're calling for a moratorium on deep sea mining, on mining itself, on the issuing of licences to mine, and also on the issuing of further exploration licences, until we we have um, defined um, a set of criteria, but basically until the information gaps are, are filled and we understand what and how things are going to be impacted. And until we have a a transparent and open decision-making process in which the communities that are going to be affected actually have an opportunity to provide their free and prior informed consent, to say that as a community we think we do want to go down this path.
1: Does this involve a UN body to look further into this? The UN body that's involved
2: with all of this is the International Seabed Authority mandated to care and manage for the resources of the deep sea. In the area of the deep sea, that's beyond national jurisdictions. So not within the national waters of countries but in that common area outside of that and that area is often just called the area, (laughs) Um, amusingly, the ISA is mandated to develop regulations for seabed mining. Uh, There's complete regulations for exploitation and it's under those regulations that they've issued around 30 licences for exploration, but they're in the process of finalising the regulations for exploitation for that actual mining itself many of the mining companies some of them very publicly there's probably a lot that goes on behind the scenes but you know at least publicly we can see deep green again really being quite pushy about the need to finalize these regulations to allow mining as soon as possible because these companies can't wait for the regulations to be um, finalised. They really, it's at that point that they anticipate that they'll really come into making money, because once they have the licences to mine, they feel that they're going to be able to then gain serious investments, and, and that's where the dollars are going to roll in. One question we're raising is if, if you look at um, Deep Green's history and the and the link of the people, the 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 current CEO Jared Barron to Nautilus, one can only wonder whether that company is actually intending to mine anything at all, or are they going to play the current Pacific Island partners the same way they play the Papua New Guinea government? By the way, the Papua New Guinea government was left with a really serious debt. Uh, equivalent to one-third of its annual national health budget. And at the same time, Australia is handing over serious money to Papua New Guinea to help them out of their debt. You know, one can only wonder what, what the Green really
1: has in mind. Well, finally, Helen, it sounds as though there's a lot more work for you and your colleagues in the near future. Yes. I think our voices are starting to
2: be heard. There's uh, a number of reports that have come out ahead of ours as well that ours build on. I think it's all coming together quite quite well. We, we were really worried that the International Seabed Authority was going to go ahead with its July meeting and ram through these regulations under the cover of COVID, you know, with some kind of limited uh, internet sort of <laughs> gathering Because we've been protesting that and really raising the issue of that, and actually even Forbes magazine uh, highlighted that issue of the ISA doing that, they listed that as number five out of ten environmental problems most likely to get worse under COVID. As a result of all that pressure, the ISA has deferred its next meeting to October whether or we'll have to see whether international gatherings are feasible in October with COVID. But um, it does give us some sense that um, our efforts haven't been in vain and there, there are some um, points of sensitivity that we can, and some levers we can, we can try and push a little bit with the
1: ISA. Just as a final.
2: And another aspect of the ISA that we're, uh, we've been working hard to expose is its corporate capture, that like a number of other United Nations bodies, um, the influence of companies have been um, much greater than the influence of perhaps even some governments and certainly of civil society which only has observer status at the ISA. And a particular concern is the Secretary General's relationship with the companies especially the company Deep Green. The Secretary-General, Michael Lodge, has become Deep Green's poster boy in a way. He's been actively marketing the company and seabed mining. He's appeared in their promotional videos. He's spoken at uh, various forums, including Pacific Island uh, leaders' forums where he uses his position which you know looks to be as you would ex- would probably expect the United Nations secretary general to be impartial and perhaps acting in the best interests of the member nations of the ISA, but uh, he actually goes to these forums to push the interests of the mining company and to and to push seabed mining at the uh, Pacific island le- leaders. Uh, We published a report last year called Why the Rush, uh, referring to why the rush to conduct seabed mining in the Pacific Ocean. And we feature on the cover of that report a photo that Michael Lodge, the Secretary-General of the ISA, tweeted of himself, sitting in a deep green exploration vessel, looking pretty pleased with himself, um, wearing a deep green hard hat. So um, we feel like that photo um, probably speaks a thousand words (laughs) and yeah, so that's uh, of great concern to quite a few of us and also a few other people associated with the ISA and uh, Michael Lodge is up for re-election this this year so um, we're wondering how that might go
1: and you've been listening to Dr Helen Rosenbaum from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign Hi, Hi we're, we're the Marindas, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to 3CR, 3CR Community Radio
3: 855 AM Hi my is
5: Nassim Natchini I'm one of the co-hosts of Palestine Remembered a fantastic show that's on 3CR every Saturday morning at 9.30am and I say it's fantastic not just for the fact that I'm on there though that's one of the leading reasons, of course. It's fantastic because it's the only show in Australia that allows Palestinians to talk about Palestine. And it's not just Palestine that 3CR enables a voice to. 3CR gives voice to so many different and varied, generally, voiceless people. We need 3CR to go on, we need it to flourish, and not just for Palestine, but for all marginalised communities. So what we need you to do is support 3CR, go on to 3cr.org.au, click on the donate button. We're very, very keen and in fact desperate to keep 3CR on the air. Thanks so much for your support.
1: 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. On Sunday evening, I talk with a tired, but I believe very positive, Jacob Gregg about the Black Lives Matters protests the day before. I don't think he was feeling certifiably insane, as the New South Wales Police Minister labelled anyone who attended. And then everyone and their dog in the hierarchy said, stay home. Have you ever heard the opposite? And if you go, you will be fined. In light of all this, I asked Jacob how he judged the protest.
4: Well, it was
6: absolutely amazing. I've got to, I, I guess, give a bit of a disclaimer to start with. I only saw part of the rally because my crew and I were doing sound, mobile sound, in the middle of the rally. There was a stage set up at the beginning and end, but we provided sound at three places along the rally and with a mobile PA rig to travel it to rally. So we never got to see the whole rally. But we were on Burke Street and as the crowd moved by, I did my usual thing of doing a hard count and I got to 23,000 before a a sound incident pulled me away and I don't think I got halfway through the crowd. So 50,000 people, peaceful, uplifted spirits, angry of course, but it was one of the, the best vibe demonstrations I've ever been on. And I've been on a few.
1: People get to tell their stories, the families.
6: Yes, the families told their stories. People listened. Normally when you're at a rally, for example, people were talking and half the crowd are having their own conversations. But people actually shut up and listened to what people were saying, which was amazing. And the solidarity with people there was... I guess, like, it's, it's one thing to say whenever we, have a, whenever we have a protest on various issues, particularly where it's affecting one particular sector of society, people are respectful and in solidarity. But there was a real emotional solidarity there on the weekend. People wanted to hear the stories and people were feeling the grief. It was cathartic, I'm sure, for a lot of the Indigenous people there. But I guess the other thing, too, is that it wasn't just... While it was about Aboriginal deaths in custody, it was also Black Lives Matter in solidarity with the United States and around the world. So I think a different thing that I never felt or didn't witness at previous Solidarity rallies was that African communities and refugee communities also played a big part in it. There were African speakers and um, and it was an acknowledgement that this is about the systemic inherent racism, I guess, in this, so- in this society. So it was a real bringing together.
1: And Palestinians were represented there as
6: well? Palestinians were represented there as well. I believe there was a Palestinian speaker on the main stage. I never got to hear them but I can't tell you what they spoke about because that was at the time when I was mucking around with other sound at my end of the gig.
1: And people have the sense that there were demonstrations or protests like this going on in not only around Australia but in many countries in Europe and also in America.
6: It was. There was a lot of chants along the lines of, you know, from, from Minneapolis to Melbourne, from all around the world and the world is watching and there was a a real sense that people weren't just protesting in Melbourne, that we were part of a a huge international movement. And again, I haven't felt that for a long time, that recognition that we as a people are in it together. In fact, the last time I can think of anything like that was probably close to, geez, maybe even 20 years ago for the No Gulf War rallies, you know, when the big weekend when people went out everywhere. But there was that sense of everybody being aware and all through the crowd as people are passing because we had the sound set up halfway down Burke Street, then on the corner of Swanston and, and Burke. People were talking amongst themselves. Did you hear this happened in uh, London? Did you hear this happen in Buffalo? Did you hear this happened here? Did you hear this happen there? There was a I guess I could say something that I'm not familiar with, people having that understanding.
1: Did the police behave?
6: The police behaved, which surprised me because, you know, at first they said they were going to fine people and they were asking people to, not to come and then they said it would be impractical for us to stand against it, to find everybody. And then the 11th hour, it turned again and Daniel Andrews came from supporting the protest and accepting the protest to then again urging people not to attend. The police, when I spoke to their liaison about sound and everything the day before, were quite stern and quite heavy, making a whole lot of demands on what we do with the sound trucks. But on the day, once they saw the amount of people there, they realised there was nothing they could do about it. I mean, seriously, we had 50,000 people there. And when you've got 50,000 people on the streets, um, it's almost impossible for the police to to misbehave, as it were. They would have been overwhelmed. At the, um, I think they call it the East Melbourne Police Station down on Burke Street, there was a contingent of people who stayed at the police station chanting about police brutality and police corruption, and that had a few thousand people throughout the afternoon, and the police horses were lined up in front of that protecting their station. But even then, the police took a relatively hands-off approach, I've got to say. I don't want to make it sound as if I'm congratulating or justifying or whatever the police here. as much to say that it seems like the political or at least the operational decision was, there's nothing we can do about this. And, of course, that empowered people as well.
1: And you think if there's that many people went, Jacob, if there hadn't been the fear amongst a lot of people of COVID-19 how many people would have actually been out in the streets yesterday?
6: It's really hard to say. Like, looking at social media the day before and even this morning or this afternoon, it seems that a lot of people decided they weren't going to go because of COVID-19. And that is people that are, you know, with other issues, either, either age or respiratory issues or were sick who stood out on their streets. So apparently there were hundreds and hundreds of people all over Melbourne just standing outside on their streets with Black Lives Matter signs as well. But I reckon it could have it could have swelled to another few thousand. But I really think the way the Andrews government told people to stay at home, urged people to come out on the streets in a similar way to what it did at the climate change rally back in, I think it was late March, early April. We were expecting 4,000 people and when the police and the government said, don't come out, don't come out, don't come out, it swelled to 20,000 people. So it's a funny thing about Melbournians in a way. I think, as I say, the fact that we were told not to come out made some people come who perhaps wouldn't have come otherwise.
1: All the stories about being socially unaccountable, how did you... Counter that.
6: The organizers war, Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, had fifty thousand face masks to hand out. God knows how many thousands of bottles of hand sanitizer. At our sound truck we had another, I think, ten thousand face masks to hand out and um, that we'd sourced privately. We had that much hand sanitizer available at the rally that I could have got... I was thinking I should have just got a fire pump and sprayed the crowd with it as they walked past. The streets of Melbourne smelt like bloody hand sanitizer as, as they walked past, and, and just about everybody was wearing a mask. As I'm talking to you, I'm sitting in the car with my son, for example. He was there helping us with the sound and at the rally, and he's going to be taking it easy and isolating for the next 14 days and getting a COVID test in the next week, and a lot of people have undertaken to isolate, and a lot of people have undertaken to take COVID tests. Not that we believe there was a serious issue of infections, as, as you know, as I say, seriously. 99% of the people wore face masks, and just about everybody who passed the sound truck was met with a lineup of people with bottles of hand sanitizer that was was just sanitizing everybody's hands, squirting the place everywhere. That's how we'd address the socially irresponsible aspect. But then the the other thing, you never minimize risk. I mean, you never completely abolish the risk. Of course there's a risk. Just like, you know, in a day, a cold Melbourne day, there would have been risk of people getting all manner of infections, everything you do. But the important thing to remember, too, is we weren't there being socially irresponsible, as it were, because we wanted to have a party or because we thought something needed to be said that wasn't time crucial. We were there as part of a worldwide movement trying to force the state and federal governments to finally do something about the systemic racist violence in Australia's police forces. And... The incredible thing is, and I don't think it made a, a lot of media, but while we were there, as we were packing up the first um, sound, the first soundstage, we got a call through or a message through, reporting another Black Death in custody in Perth on Saturday. So it's something that's ongoing, and I think it could be argued that it would be social. It would have been socially irresponsible to our Indigenous friends and colleagues and um, other people of colour in Melbourne to say, you know, there is a small chance of catching a virus here and with the virus, even if it was caught, a small chance of, you know, most otherwise healthy people outside of a certain age group, actually where the virus would actually do much damage. It was an act of solidarity to say, will minimise the risk, but we understand there's a risk, but it's a risk. I guess what I'm trying to say is the risk people took would still be smaller than the risk that every black person takes when they walk out onto the street, COVID or no COVID, of being brutalised by the police. Not just deaths. We're not just talking about deaths. We're talking about the African kids who get pulled up on train stations. We're talking about... People who get pulled over because they look like someone who was involved in a robbery or in a crime. And I don't think there's any such thing that we could have done to minimise any risks of COVID. But as I say, it was was recognising that the risks we faced were smaller than the risk black people faced on the streets of Melbourne every day.
1: And there very well could have been another death in Sydney just a couple of days ago with the policeman there putting his knee or his foot under the knee of the the young kid and letting him fall face forward onto the ground. That could have had a fractured skull and death. It
6: could have ended up in a death, sure. But then the other thing to bear in mind with that is that You know, was it the commissioner or someone from a senior copper said um, that the cop was having a bad day, as if that's almost excuses it. But even with what did happen, what we saw is young blackfellas watching that happen in front of them, and then it spread on the news and through the mainstream and social media. Now, what happens, say, to a kid who saw that when he was 11 years old the other day, in two years' time, a copper yells at him, says, stop there, and he decides to run, because he saw that. So it's not only the immediate deaths that cause death. What that did is it helped strengthen the culture of fear and mistrust that is natural and quite smart for young Indigenous people in Australia. While it didn't kill that young kid, it's a part of the whole thing which is going to lead to more Indigenous deaths in future. You know, people say, for example, particularly with young blackfellas, well, why didn't you just follow the direction of the police? Well, this is why they don't follow the direction of the police, because they don't want to have their legs cut out from under them, and then flat on their face. It ups the ante for the, young, for, for the young blokes, and then that, of course, ups the ante for the police that say, well, he was running away, therefore I had to shoot him.
1: No attempt for a counter <coughs> protest by the right?
6: Never saw any, never heard rumours of any, and there were a couple of people in there with a sign saying, all lives matter, and, but they were quickly asked to take them down. There was one person I saw in there with an Australian flag on their back, an Australian flag cape, but the the protest organisers, warriors of the Aboriginal resistance, were fairly good in urging people not to respond violently or with anger. The Worker's Solidarity Group um, provided marshals. There were hundreds of marshals, all of whom have been trained to de-escalate those kind of situations. We had uh, a dozen of them forming a barrier around each of our sound locations, just as an example. So, while the right didn't turn up in in numbers, as we feared, even if they had, we were um, uh, more than ready to de-escalate the situation and deal with them in an appropriate fashion. Even if they got off the train, it was one of the things that really that really turned me on, I've got to say, is obviously I had to get in there early, but I was staying in out Banduraway and as I was driving in to get to the sound warehouse in the morning, there were already people holding signs and with slogan t- sh- not T-shirts and um, hoodies waiting at tram stops who were obviously going into the rally, maybe doing one or two other things in the city beforehand. I could tell then it was going to be bigger than I thought it was going to be. Um, so when you can imagine that when, if the right did have organised people coming in, I don't think they would have got further than Flinders Street Station or Melbourne Central Station before they said, look, bugger this, we're not doing it. The only thing that will stop the right is large numbers to show that they're not going to be tolerated.
1: Well, you've got the large numbers at the rally. Where does the protest go from there?
6: The next place it's got to go is to say it's not enough, like any issue, it's not enough to come out onto a rally once a year or once or every six months or even once a week and be on the street. What we need to do is now push it back onto the parliamentarians. Daniel Andrews' government, for example, and we're talking state here because justice, so-called justice, is is a state matter, have had... Dozens of reports over the years outlining the kind of things they can do and they should do by their own consultants to end the systemic racism in the police force. And the government needs to not just make these noises and say, oh, look, it's bad, it's sorry, we don't like the way this is happening, but they need to actually change not just the laws but the culture within the police force. But instead, they're not doing that. Andrews has said over the years of his premiership that whatever the police need, they will get. The police are being militarised. We now have police on the street who look nothing like the police who were on the street when you and I were younger, mate. They look like Robocop. And even though they weren't out in force yesterday, they were waiting there in cars, lined up on Little Burke Street. If the decision was made by whoever was high up in the police force orchestrating things, they would have moved out. They had the capabilities and they had they had the technical equipment to move in like any Robocop police force that we've been watching in the United States. So we need to, for a start, dismantle that. I mean, in recent weeks, we've heard, for example, of the federal police force having um, a leadership or a leadership group who are acting like mafia. There's no reason to believe that that's not also happening in state police forces. We need to address the kinds of brutality that is systemic in the police force. And the Andrews government can do that, no question, if they had the political will to do it. So to get back to your, your question, the next stage is to put pressure on the Andrews government to not just talk in weasel words about standing in support and standing for all Victorians and all the rest of it, but to actually do something to change the situation because that's what we haven't seen. All we've seen is words.
1: In the midst of the focus on black deaths, we must not forget our own incarcerated publisher and journalist, Julian Assange.
6: Well, you don't get much whiter than Julian, mate. No, he um, was supposed to be in court last monday he's locked up in belmarsh and all of belmarsh is in lockdown but he wasn't able to get to court even by video link because of respiratory problems now we know that the that the coronavirus is running rampant through the british prison system we know that belmarsh is short staffed and under lockdown because of Either infection or fear of infection, we can't find out because they're not telling us numbers. But Julian managed to get on the phone and um, spoke of how so many prisoners have been moved because of coronavirus and how so many staff, how many prison guards are off because of coronavirus. And we've got him there, and this is like 13 months after he was given a 50-week sentence for skipping bail, still being held in isolation with respiratory problems to the point where he he can't even be on a video. Now, what's happening in London is happening in London, but what's also concerning us, like I just spoke about the Andrews government, is the political will in Australia. Last week, before um, he was due to go to court, so the week before, sorry, Foreign Minister Maurice Payne, was given four, I think, separate letters, one signed by academics, one signed by a mob of journalists, one signed by legal people, one signed by um, human rights organisations, and another one signed by present and former parliamentarians, urging her to intercede with the British and American governments on Julian's behalf to make representation to her um, opposite number, I guess you'd call it, the uh, foreign secretary in Britain, and to report back on the outcome of those representations. Now, she hasn't reported back. As far as we can make out, she hasn't taken those letters seriously. We have a situation where Julian's life is capable, of able to be saved by pressure put on from the Australian government to both the British and American governments, but the government here is sitting on their hands and doing nothing, and that is shameful. Just like they say about black deaths in custody, oh, yes, it's terrible, we don't like the way it's happening, but what are we going to do about it? We're going to do nothing. And this this speaks to a much wider and a much sadder malaise happening in the state of Australian politics at the moment where we don't actually have people with any passion or any abilities to stand up for people's rights in our parliaments. All we have is a managerial class who are doing what they can to make the people they answer to as happy happy as possible in every small decision. And there's no way they're going to stand up for Julian and there's no way they're going to stand up for the rights of Indigenous people in Australia. While the issues, as you say, are completely different between Black Deaths in Custody and Julian's situation in Belmarsh, they are the same issue, and that is that we have a ruling class who are profiting, both through power and in a whole lot of other ways, from the oppression that they're putting on, Um, Australian citizens at home and abroad and that needs to change. Yes, I am calling for evolution, by the way.
1: Okay, take that one on board, and thanks to Jacob Gregg.
2: It's very interesting how quickly they adopt socialist principles to protect the capitalist framework when it's not working. This has shown that they can chuck money and make a difference, and people are saying, well, make that difference now. We've got other emergencies. Let's spend some of that money seriously to reorientate the economy for public good and in the public interest, rather than saying, let the market provide. My hope is that they'll be bold with pressure to do things that build a more people-centred and focused future. And, you know, that comes down to us. It comes down to the 3CR listeners, the the ACF and Friends of the Earth members, the trade unionists. It comes down to everybody that makes... A difference and puts in, we need to build on the community that's been developed in the last couple of months and build on some of the smart ideas for a cleaner future.
5: 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity.
1: To donate, go to 3cr.org.au.
3: You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. I'm
1: reading from a news release from the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. Quote, ICHRP alerts the international community as Philippines fast-tracks terror bill. Global Human Rights Group condemns murder of Filipino urban poor activist. The International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines alerts the global community to an all out escalation of human rights abuses with the railroading of the latest anti terrorism legislation. A proposed law that claims to supposedly curb terrorism was fast tracked by lawmakers on the 29th of May amidst the country's battle against the COVID 19 pandemic. To discuss this bill and the general situation in the Philippines. I'm speaking with Peter Murphy, who is the chairperson of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. But first, Peter, I want to go back a month to the 5th of May and the shutting down of a broadcast network in the Philippines. Who is it?
5: The ABS-CBN network, I think, accounted the last survey earlier this year for 44% of the broadcast market, that is TV and radio. That, that's, that's 44% of the audience in the country was following that uh, network. So, it, you know, it's like shutting down the ABC, except that it's a private company, you know. It's, it's a very significant and really vicious attack on the media by the, the government of the Philippines.
1: And the reason given?
5: Uh, that its uh, license had expired. Of course, it was like a technicality, but uh, the normal thing is to apply for a renewal of the licence and for it to be granted. Um, And in the law of the Philippines, it's a uh, a decision of the Congress to do it. But uh, the application was simply stalled in the Congress until it had expired. And then the National Telecommunications Commission, which supervises the area, in the past, when this type of delay happened, had just uh, provided a temporary extension of the old licence until the Congress did the uh, process. And in this case, the National Telecommunications Commission simply uh, issued an order for them to cease broadcasting on uh, the 5th of May.
1: Was it in any sense a radical network?
5: No. It was, <laughs> I, I would say it's uh, very much in the middle of the road, uh, but... It was reporting uh, significantly on the war on drugs, where, again, if you can imagine the crime beat of a journalist, there's uh, bloody corpses, you know, many, many every day. By reporting those, the president felt that his war on drugs was being criticised and commentators or opinion pieces uh, in the ABS-CBM was... Critical, you know, of, of, of the obvious lawlessness of the war on drugs. So the president himself had already by last November been issuing statements that there was no way the SCBM would be getting its license renewed. It was very much a, a presidential decision. Of course, social media is already very big in the, in the Philippines, like around the world, but there are 11,000 people working for the network. So the quality of the journalism, you know, cannot really be replaced by social media. The uh, editorial processes and so on just uh, have been stopped. So I think the company is owned by the Lopez family, which is a big, you know, oligarchic family. That's why the idea that they're radicals is is a bit of a joke. And I think that the family has uh, decided to keep the staff uh, employed, even if they're not getting any income. But i don't think they can do that for more than a month or two, really, so the situation could be retrieved, but it's it, there's no apparent prospect of that
1: well, apart from social media, what is left for the people of the Philippines in the sense of media?
5: Well, there are other television stations it's just that the biggest one by by a mile is has, has disappeared, so you know it's a it's a um, not as good a uh, range of options um, and especially in news I think it's, it's a significant hole but of course it this isn't broadcast media we're talking about so the print media is, is covered by separate laws being an older technology and so on so uh, ABS-CBN has got a sister print publication the Philippine Daily Inquirer which is still running and of course it's campaigning hard for the license to be renewed I should have said there is a court case that the the company went to the to the Supreme Court for a stay of the suspension of their license, and um, the the court should have and is decided by now. But the court, you may recall, has already been corrupted by the president a couple of years ago when the chief justice was removed in an unconstitutional process. So really, I've got no expectation that the court will move in any time. I I do think it's a matter of public pressure. And we're in this period of the coronavirus uh, around the world and in the Philippines, it's also a fairly severe uh, situation where the lockdown has only just been lifted. And uh, actually, no, it's continuing to June 15, I think. So the military presence on the street, the, the constriction on movement of people and so on makes it very difficult, I think, for the people to push... Uh, for this uh, really bad decision to be reversed.
1: Well, if the powers that be felt that they could do this to this media network, how safe are print media outlets?
5: Well, they're not safe. You know, a particular way of the law working was used to uh, shut down ABS-CBN. It would have to be some other legal set-up, you know, manipulated to, to take action against... Uh, say a print media or another company but you know there's already been several actions taken uh, like um, you know alleging that the um, uh, broadcast company like Rappler the online one has got foreign investors in it which uh, at an illegal level there or there's something wrong with their corporate reporting or they haven't properly registered themselves with the Securities and Exchange Commission you know these sort of things about taxation auditing and investment laws they can all be deployed so I think the media different media companies are really pretty well all owned by an oligarchic family and uh, it's um, you know uh, elite level politics we're talking about here e- each family will stand up for itself and it will try to look for allies and so on so I think there will be a sort of a um, um, a lot of support for ABS-CBN to get its license back coming from other media people. But uh, the, the fear is also there. This, this reminds people of Marcos because once Marcos declared martial law, he simply seized the companies, to seize them and gave their management to cronies. So, you know, th- it's in living memory and uh, I think that uh, people... In the media and in the elite are aware of this.
1: I've read that this is the second time in history that this network has been closed down. Was the first one under Marcos?
5: I believe so. Actually I haven't uh, read the details of what Marcos did to this company but the Lopez family was uh, you know against Marcos.
1: What's the new law that was brought in on the 29th of May?
5: It's called the anti-terror bill that was the bill, and it was to amend the Human Security Act of 2007, which is basically the sort of overall anti-terrorism law. So the Human Security Act was bad enough. Like, it's very, if you read it, it's very similar in scope and you know really sweeping uh, style to many of the anti-terrorism laws in, adopted in Australia since 2003. But the this amendment, which it seems to have renamed the whole act into an anti-terror act, it provides for a council to be appointed to uh, supervise the anti-terrorism effort of the government. And the council is authorized to issue, well they're not really warrants, but to issue orders for searches and orders for arrests. Um, and then the pe- people arrested can be held for 14 days without charge, without appearing in a court and that can be extended for 10 days. So 24 days of detention without charge and without appearing before a court and again people can remember the Marcos time. So there's, there's really a fear of um, mass arrests and uh, no real legal provision to contest these things. And as I've made comments to you already about the Supreme Court, uh, it's it's really unlikely the Supreme Court would take measures to counter this. It's also clear, if you read these provisions of the Act and then you actually read provisions of the Constitution adopted in 1987 after Marcos, that it's just completely unconstitutional, these provisions I've just described. So in the Constitution itself, it says that nobody can be detained and uh, not appear before a court under charge longer than three days. So they must appear within three days, which is very generous, naturally, to the uh, authorities, but um, three days is a far, far short of 14 days or 24 days. And uh, it's also illegal in the Constitution to arrest without a warrant, but now it's being given a carte blanche. And uh also... There's no DPP involved in this. It's not really a judicial process at all, the laying of charges and issuing of warrants. Normally they're done by judges. Now it's going to be done by a committee of military officers.
1: Well, if the Constitution is being ignored, isn't it martial law?
5: Yes, it is martial law. It's martial law in real life on the streets when pretty well every corner there's a soldier with a gun asking for your ID. That's that's the sort of real daily life under COVID-19 in the Philippines. And um, the sort of broader things like these new provisions of this Act, that's unconstitutional. And the previous high-level orders given towards the end of 2018 for, they called it the whole of nation policy to suppress local communist terrorist groups, something like that, it's got a long acronym it's basically a martial law uh, operation and um it's it's led to uh, some deadly outcomes in negros and now more recently in Bicol and um, the mass arrests of trade unionists uh, last october so all of these are features of martial law. And the the military themselves post on their Facebook pages lists of organisations to be suppressed, which are all legally registered organisations, trade unions and and human rights groups and and Indigenous peoples' organisations and women's organisations. So, you know, it's this completely unconstitutional type of government now and it's correct to describe it as martial law because it is really being run by generals.
1: And are these groups being targeted at the moment?
5: there's threats issued against them and uh, yes people have been shot dead who are on these lists in the last month the uh, uh, hounding of trade unions is continuing we've got an interesting counterpoint has just happened in that the United Nations Human Rights Council issued its uh, report on the human rights situation in the Philippines last Thursday, June 4 and uh they really spelt out, not, not making this declaration that we've just discussed, you know, that uh, it's a martial law regime, but specifying in, in quite fine detail the f- broad range of abuses of human rights being, con- being experienced in the Philippines and that these are, are state-driven the, and, and recommending very significant countermeasures, um, including uh, the international community whatever the Philippines government says in response to the report should authorise more monitoring and more investigation, more support uh, for the human rights advocates in the Philippines. So the Philippines government has rejected the report, uh, saying that its conclusions are based on wrong information. But I think it's, uh, it's like it's just a preliminary now because the Human Rights Council is due to meet Either virtually or in person in Geneva in a few weeks time. And, uh, and the Philippines government representatives will have to talk to the other government's representatives there about this report. So I'm hoping that the international pressure can, can inhibit and contain and reduce the level of abuses taking place. But as, he, as we've discussed with this new law, you know, the President Duterte has really armed himself with a really, you know, severe, as you say, martial law-type power, and uh, we must expect that it will be used.
3: There
1: hasn't been much international condemnation of Duterte in the past, so why are we expecting anything to happen now?
5: Well, there has been there has been in the past, but I, I would agree that it's been quite muted. Um, I mean, the, in the period, say, since the Marawi uh, city uh, bombardment and, and destruction, which was in 2017. So really, we've had two and a half years of no real, you know, uh, criticism. And that, I think, corresponds really roughly with the Trump presidency in the United States. Prior to that, even the Australian government occasionally criticised Duterte and uh, certainly the Obama administration. Did as well, and certain people in Europe uh, also did. So, yeah, it, it could come back, um, and I think the U- UN Human Rights Council, being a, a forum in which the facts can really be put out in a clear way, is uh, going to help that to happen. I'm, you know, we're in Australia, and uh, it is it is depressing that the Australian government won't make any public criticisms of Duterte even though these very very bad things continue to happen and um privately though the Australian government is criticizing the the uh, detention of uh, Senator De Lima it's criticizing the war on drugs it supported this Human Rights Council uh investigation and something you know uh, presuming presumably it will support the report and uh it's also been donating money to the human rights commission of the philippines to help its uh, capacity to investigate abuses yeah so you know we've got a two level thing where our government won't won't stick its head above the parapet even though it knows you know it's a very very big problem what's taking place in the philippines so uh, part of that is a military relationship with the united states and and you know the alleged uh, need to fight Islamic terrorism in the Philippines, but um, that, that sort of is very flimsy, really, when you look at the facts.
1: Well, we don't really have to supply soldiers to the Philippines, do we? That's our choice, isn't it?
5: That's right. That's right. And unfortunately, at that level, Australia has been increasing its military contribution to the Philippines, and including soldiers in the Philippines, Australian soldiers in the Philippines. It's pretty secretive about it, but as far as we can tell, there's probably a couple of hundred Australian service people in the Philippines at any one time.
1: Finally, Peter, what protection is there for the people of the Philippines from the virus?
5: It's really it's hard to give a good answer to that. There's virtually no real protection. There's virtually no real testing actually happening in the Philippines. So no one really has a picture of the spread of the virus. The uh, hospitals have virtually no equipment. Their lockdown has caused extreme stress because of hunger. It's a lot of people <clears throat> earn their income by the day and buy their food by the day. So they've had to rely on virtually, they don't have savings, you know, just what their uh, family can scrape together, what the local government authority might be able to distribute to them and what you know, voluntary community organisations can distribute. Quite a few teams of distributors of food have been arrested for allegedly breaching the lockdown. <clears throat> so it, that's actually political repression. It's just a, really a situation of extreme stress in the Philippines right now and uh, no real medical uh, support of any substance and um, you can even say that in the very first batch of uh, cases of people dying from the coronavirus, 30 of them were doctors and another 20 were nurses. So that the medical people, because they didn't have adequate personal protective equipment, you know, got got heavy, heavily dosed with the virus and, and there was a big casualty rate. So, yeah, it's a very grim picture.
1: With such repression in the Philippines, yeah. what role is there for groups outside the Philippines such as yours?
5: Well, I think you can see that it's uh, really important that there is an international uh, protest about what's taking place, that information about what's Unfolding in the Philippines continues to to be ventilated around the world and uh, you could see that the um, The fact that the Human Rights Council of the United Nations has gone this far is is an outcome of you know many years of uh, protest about uh, the situation in the Philippines even prior to Duterte But especially since Duterte really revealed himself as a sort of mass killer so you know, Duterte himself personally threatened people who work for the United Nations at a high level. So you know, it's um understandable that at that level, you, the UN institution cannot tolerate that without pushing back itself and the member states cannot uh, tolerate it either. Otherwise, the United Nations will uh, be really deeply degraded. So the community-level voices, that is really migrant workers organisations, church organisations, trade union bodies, lawyers, Uh, these are the people who have been protesting and pointing out the problems, as I say, for several years and we've we've got a certain level of outcome now, which is a very good platform to build on for much more decisive action. A country like the Philippines really relies on the international financial system. It relies directly on especially the United States, yeah, Canada, Australia and the European Union for significant military aid and other economic aid. So there's a lot of leverage and I think we have to keep our focus on those levers. Um, and I think that in the next month or so, we, we should have some sort of uh, extra loud voice coming out of the UN process that could assist in, in actual action being taken to really isolate and put pressure on the Duterte government. There's one other thing, you know, that um, you know he's done which will be having some kind of backfire effect on him. So because uh, he got criticised uh, by the United States through a general being denied a visa to the United States at the start of the year. Uh, visiting forces agreement between the U.S. and the Philippines was suspended and he declared, the President Duterte declared it's it's uh, he's going to abolish it. And he had to give three months notice on 90 days. So that's expired. So the actual ability of the United States to rotate Marines through the Philippines is no longer there. It's illegal. And... um those Marines, by the way, they after they do the Philippines, they come to Darwin. So the whole whole operation between Guam, Japan, uh, the Philippines, and, and Darwin is, is sort of been uh, destabilised. But um I myself can't imagine that even President Trump will uh, let that happen without some kind of pushback. So we we should keep our eyes on that as well. And this uh, there could be another bad side effect for Australia from that is. If the US can't send troops to the Philippines, you know, the only other country with a visiting forces agreement with the Philippines is Australia. So we may find pressure coming on us from Washington to send significantly more soldiers to the Philippines uh, ourselves. So that would be an issue to take up as well, because there's no doubt that our military aid and so on, the people we train in in Australia from the Philippines are involved in human rights abuses at a scandalous level. So We've got a lot of challenges in Australia, but we've got a basis to fight it.
1: Thank you, Peter.
5: Okay, Jan, thank you very much.
1: I've been speaking with Peter Murphy, the chairperson of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines.
3: When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally like older, wetter forests
0: Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au
1: Next on Tuesday Home Time, the final part of my interview with journalist and researcher Nick Mclellan about how Pacific nations are coping with COVID-19 and how they have coped with Cyclone Harold.
4: There's also a cultural concern about pandemics. One of the features of colonisation, not just in the Pacific but around the developing world, is the way that introduced disease really decimated populations in historic times and indeed in recent times. You know, going back to the days when the Spanish and the British and others brought smallpox to the pacific and killed communities through smallpox through influenza uh, through measles through other diseases that these isolated pacific islands have never had there's a deep cultural memory about the threat of pandemic that's why the pacific has been largely successful because people just instantly locked down they just said no we we want to stop foreigners coming and that's been the striking feature that it's been the, the territories that don't control their borders that don't have control over governments and health systems and borders and having your own health border force at the border to control people coming in, they've suffered worse. So it's been Hawaii, the U.S. state of Hawaii. It's been Guam, the U.S. territory in the Western Pacific, New Caledonia, French Polynesia, that have got high rates of, uh, of COVID. Even Rapa Nui, one of the most isolated places on the world, Easter Island, which is under Chilean administration, They've had cases of COVID and deaths because their borders are controlled by Chile, thousands of miles away. The chiefs in Rapa Nui in in Easter Island wanted to shut down the borders. The Chilean tourism minister said, no, no, you have to keep it open. Um, We've had the same thing. Uh, Edouard Philippe, the French prime minister, just a week ago said, oh, you know, we want people in France to be able to go on their annual holidays in July and August like normal. We want normalcy. So the idea is that you should travel to rural France or travel to the overseas French territories. Now, people in the territories have gone berserk and said, hang on, you've had nearly
2: 30,000 deaths
4: in France. You've had tens of thousands of cases, confirmed diagnoses of of COVID-19. And you want to bring that to the overseas territories? So there's an enormous challenge of colonialism. You know, we're not all equal in this pandemic. Some people are able to, uh, you know, address the weaknesses of their health systems and others have these colonial impositions put on them.
1: The issue of these giant cruise ships, which at the moment are not flying around the the oceans, were they a benefit to the people in the Pacific or not?
4: There's a mixed attitude to cruise ships in the Pacific. Some countries have a strong cruising tradition. Uh, New Caledonia um, gets a lot of cruises from Australia and New Zealand. Similarly, Vanuatu, Fiji... Uh, they've made up what they call Mystery Island or things like that. And, and uh, you know, you, it's sort of like this paradise, exotic notion of the Pacific. And certainly there is some employment from, uh, um, you know, a cruise ship arriving. As I say, women can make handicrafts. Uh, there are people uh, who can uh, run tours. So, you, you know, you've got the day off. People will run you around the island in a minibus or dance troops, cultural groups uh, you know, uh, who want to preserve their cultural identity, also make money um, out of tourism and things like that. So there are spin-offs from the cruise ships. But there's a lot of distaste for cruise ships in the Pacific as well. The enormous environmental pollution that comes from a cruise ship, you know, with with thousands of people on board, even just the sewerage and things, if, as sometimes happens, there's a discharge of sewerage into a fishing ground, even not, you know, when they're in port, but it's, as they leave a port, you know there's been cases where cruise ships have, uh, have discharged their sewage tanks and just destroyed fishing grounds for, for weeks on end. There's a lot of negative attitude to the environmental impacts. There's a lot of concern too about um, uh, the social impacts. You know cruise ships are a funny mixture. There's uh, a lot of elderly people who go on cruises and really enjoy it, some family groups. But there's also an element of sex tourism that, that impacts on the ports that they go to as well. So you get a lot of drinking and a lot of sex, and that has uh, impacts on local uh, people when the cruise ships dock. So there's this ambivalence about cruise ships, but it was clear right from the beginning when people saw what was happening with the Diamond Princess, which was in Japan um, and had a lot of cases of COVID, and then, of course, the Ruby Princess, people um in the Pacific were monitoring what was happening, I think, earlier with the Diamond Princess before the Ruby Princess blew up in the media Basically everyone just banned cruise ships from day one. Uh, you know, in in late February, early March, most Pacific countries just said no cruise ship visits. It's an economic hit. Um, it can be a a social hit for the the communities that do get some benefits from the tourism, but the cost was enormous. And we're, we're in a globalized media environment. People now through social media, through TV and things, can information and particularly the diamond princess. The stories coming from the Diamond Princess in Japan very early in the pandemic shocked a lot of Pacific governments, and they recognised that cruise ships were one of the first things to go.
1: How widespread is social media in the islands that you travel to, and how important they've been to alert people to the problems of the virus?
4: It's very important. You know, social media is spread widely through the Pacific. You know, mobile phone technology is, is everywhere. The quality of the uh, bandwidth and things is a problem. Um, Surprise, surprise, it's the thing we have in Australia. In big urban centres, there's quite good broadband. The further you go from town, the more you go into regional areas, certainly into outlying islands, the the bandwidth can disappear. There's a lot of effort now to connect um, the Pacific Islands to super-fast broadband, and indeed that's a battleground. Huawei offered to build a cable, say, to the Solomon Islands, and under the Turnbull government, Australia stepped in to offer to pay for a, a, a cable connecting Australia, P&G, Solomons, so that Huawei technology, Chinese technology wouldn't be used. That was one of the earliest battles under the Turnbull government in the current Cold War against China. You've had companies like Digicel and Vodafone uh, spreading phone uh, technology. That's been really important to get to rural areas. They don't have great bandwidth to download, you know, a lot of telly. But certainly simple SMS messages can be sent from, you know, most, many, not most, many rural areas around the region and have been used in quite innovative ways. A lot of countries, for example, use simple SMS text messaging for cyclone warnings. And so that technology has been converted fairly rapidly to spread, you know, the basic messages of wash your hands maintain social distancing, um, the basic health messages. And uh, I wrote an article um, a couple of months ago about uh, really innovative responses being done, you know, using social technology and also just basic peer-to-peer community education. You know, in freshwater squatter settlement in Vanuatu, it's on the outskirts of the capital, Port Vila, people don't have running water. You know, about 45% of Pacific Islanders don't have running water and sanitation. And so, you know, the notion, wash your hands, uh, is a real problem. In fresh water, they've put up bamboo poles and filled them with water, punched a hole in the side with a plug. You can just uh, take a little um, wooden plug, wash your hands with a bar of soap that's literally stuck on a bit of string and tacked to the side of the, the bamboo pole. People keep filling that up. So houses, you know, in a squatter settlement that don't have running water can get water to wash their hands, and they're teaching the kids how to wash their hands. So people have not just used social media information sharing, but also a lot of peer-to-peer education to get the message out about how to respond to this. There's also a lot of work being done around food security. People are very aware that uh, without regular flights and shipping, um, the supply chains that bring in a lot of imported food are disrupted and so everyone in the Pacific is planting. I interviewed Dame Meg Taylor, the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum. You know, she's a very worldly figure, been working for the World Bank for many years, was former PNG Ambassador to the United Nations. And I said, what positive things are happening? And she said, oh, my family are growing food. You know, she's gardening herself. Um, There's this notion that this is gonna last for a long time. And so people have been planting, whether in urban settings, but particularly obviously in rural settings, planting so that there's enough basic food and that's going to have a huge impact on nutrition positively in coming months.
1: And the ability to transfer that or transport that food around both in country and to other countries if they need it.
4: It's going to be difficult because once again it varies from country to country. You know somewhere like Nauru it's just one rock and, and people can drive around Nauru. Although fuel you know it's going to be an issue about how regular shipping uh, Patterns are disrupted, and that's going to have an impact. Where the regular flights bringing in fresh food uh, are disrupted, that's going to have an enormous impact on a, on a place like Nauru. In a big country like Kiribati, which is as wide as Australia, only has a population of a bit over 120,000 people, but um, it's spread across an area, of, you know, from Perth to Sydney. Internal communications are an enormous issue at a time where governments have lost a lot of taxation, lost a lot of revenue, lost the import duties and things like that, they've still got to pay for the sh- national shipping line. They've still got to pay for the, the, the airline. And I think the airline industry in the Pacific is going through the same turmoil as Qantas and Virgin and things is in Australia. Most countries, not everyone, but most countries have a national airline. It's vital for trade, for communications, for tourism, for the movement of seasonal workers, backwards and forwards and things like that. The tourism industry has collapsed. Um, The international development industry, to a certain extent, has collapsed. People aren't travelling for obvious reasons. And countries face enormous challenges about how much money they're going to put in to prop up their airline. Uh, We've just seen, for example, uh, Fiji Airways, which is one of the biggest airlines in the region. They just sacked 400 staff. And there's an enormous dispute, industrial dispute, underway um, about what will happen. They're looking for a, a government bailout of the Fiji Airways of, I think, over $200 million, $227 million, you have to check the figures, in order to um save the airline. And uh, it's a significant problem in PNG. It's a big question. You know, one of the, the concerns is that it's going to be the first cases of COVID were found uh Uh, The first one, in fact, was a fly-in, fly-out Australian miner who was diagnosed when he flew in from Australia. Obviously, people coming through Port Moresby, the capital, the major international airport in Port Moresby. The question then is internal flights to other parts of the country. Will that be a vector for the transmission of the disease? Every country faces its own challenge, and most Pacific countries, like Australia, have the challenge of big urban centres, being cost-effective for transport, so Sydney, Melbourne is a major air route, but to get good services out to rural areas is a major problem. You know, these are poor developing countries, by and large, and to maintain services right across the country, Australia's just seen the collapse of Virgin, uh, one of its two largest airlines, and most rural and regional air services are under enormous pressure Think what it must be for our Pacific neighbours.
1: Just thinking about road transport, Nick, in particular, scarcity of petrol and diesel.
4: Yeah, There's still shipments underway, but uh, one of the problems for the Pacific is they they don't control the commanding heights of the economy. There are major resources like Tuna, where the Pacific has fought to build up its share of, of the revenue, but they're very dependent on things like diesel and uh um uh imported oil to uh run electricity and that's one of the reasons why for the last decade or two Pacific countries have been making the shift to renewables some have gone a long way down the path to move away from uh electricity generated by diesel oil just because of this crisis the you know pacific are, are price takers you know the battle between Russia and Saudi Arabia over the price of oil causes enormous fluctuations on a global level. The growth of shale oil in America has disrupted the oil market globally in recent years, and the Pacific just has to wear it. Um, So they've been very eager to make the transition to new energy systems, decentralized energy systems, reliant on renewables, on solar, on wind, on wave power, and so on. Um, That transition is well underway in some countries, a long way to go in others, but uh, energy is, is a major problem. Look, Pacific Islanders are just like the rest of us. The questions of lockdown, the questions of how soon do you open up the economy, the questions of the gaps between the well-off who can sit at home and in comfort and ride out the the storm versus people who are on their their last dollar um, who are reliant on work that isn't available and who don't have options. Those divisions are evident in the Pacific just as they are in every country in the world. What's missing from the discussion though obviously in the Australian media is two things people underestimate the strength and resilience of Pacific communities Vanuatu has just had a national election, it's been hit by a cyclone it's had a COVID pandemic it's got political problems but people in Vanuatu are still battling on and it's tough, no one's denying that but there's a resilience and a pride that people will get through, this is not the first time you that this sort of global whammy has affected local concerns. The second thing is, it's not about China. China, for many Pacific countries, apart from the four countries that recognise Taiwan, China is just one in a long line of development partners, and they come with good points and bad points. People in the Pacific aren't naive about the surveillance capitalism that's been created in China. You know, the capitalist rotors have been running the place since the late 1970s, have the interests of Chinese corporations at their heart. They want to rip off Pacific resources just like American companies have, British companies have, Australian companies have, New Zealand companies have. People are not naive about the geopolitics of this. But they've made a decision, most Pacific countries, not all, but most, that China is a development partner that they want to work with. It's the second biggest economy of the world, and they're not naive about the geopolitical interests that the United States and China have. They're worried, however, about being trampled by the elephants. And Australia is playing a role where we're trying to force our Pacific neighbours to choose between the United States and the ANSUS Alliance and China. And most Pacific governments, Papua like New Guinea, Fiji, are and others, are saying, we want to be allies with Australia. We want to be partners with China. We can do both. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. But people are being forced into a corner and it's happening. And that's one of the problems of the you know, geopolitics of the pandemic that people are being forced to address that question at a time that they're dealing with human survival. And it's a, a really striking moment where people are looking at who are their friends and who are they not. You know, Donald Trump the other day and, you know, said that the United States was looking at resuming nuclear testing and that's to send a diplomatic signal to China but it also sends a diplomatic signal to the Pacific. This is a guy who's withdrawn from the Paris Agreement on climate change. This is a guy who refuses to give funding to the Green Climate Fund, just like Scott Morrison did. And this is a country now that's talking about the resumption of nuclear testing. And and you want people to go with the ANZUS alliance instead of China? It's madness. And, you know, Australia's grand gesture this week is $17 million funding so that we can send... Better Homes and Gardens to be broadcast through the region as a sign of Australian soft power. There's some programs that people in the Pacific love from Australia, everything from the NRL Rugby to The Voice and Music. Gardening Australia, a friend in Papua New Guinea told me he loves Gardening Australia, but Better Homes and Gardens? I'm sorry, this is the madness. This is just Australia subsidising its corporate mates, Kerry Stokes and, and, uh, and other people in the Free TV Consortium. No money for the ABC to do broadcasting. No money for Pacific journalists, Australian journalists, to work together to develop relevant content. No money for NITV to broadcast into the Pacific. I watched um, Warwick Thornton's new series, The Beach. People in the Pacific would love that. is not part of the package that's being put forward. Um, the Pacific gets neighbours instead. Well, let's talk about what being a good neighbour is all about.
1: Just finally, Nick, when you talk about issues like homes and gardens and neighbours and this rivalry between the West and China, are there any beneficiaries in this for the island nations? Do they benefit at all from that rivalry?
4: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, people have, going back to the earliest engagement between Western and sometimes Eastern nations in the Pacific, people have used the geopolitical rivalry back in the 19th century between the British and the French, back in in the days of uh, uh, King Vakabau in in Fiji where he got guns from America at the time the British were moving in. And all these sorts of questions um, have always been a case. You know, in the 20th century, the the debate about people playing the Russian card, if you don't give us things, um, we'll go to the Russians or the Libyans and so on. To a certain extent, people realize that you can play the China card. And it's done pretty crudely sometimes, you know. Australia has said on certain occasions, we won't fund a particular type of infrastructure or we won't fund a particular development program. Pacific government says, oh, well, China or the United Arab Emirates or Cuba will fund it. Um, Cuba, for example, is doing enormous amounts of medical work around the Pacific and has for more than a decade. And Pacific governments, by and large, aren't... Uh, uh, a bunch of communists, but they're happy to work with a country like Cuba, which has an excellent record in primary health care, which is really important for the Pacific. It's also a small island-developing state, um, and Cuba has been an ally for the Pacific within the global climate negotiations because they're fellow small island-developing states. Cuba's also had a long interest in sugar. Fiji and Cuba have worked together over sugar. Um, in the global trade negotiations because they both have uh, an interest as sugar-producing country- countries at a time that uh, the, the sugar protocol is collapsing. Uh, so, you know, there are a lot of commonalities that the Pacific has been able to work with other developing countries like China and Cuba, the so-called non-traditional partners. And it comes from the notion of South-South cooperation. There's a recognition that on some topics your allies are fellow members of the South of the so-called developing world. Um, not people sitting in Washington or Canberra or even Wellington. But Australia and New Zealand are, are neighbours, are partners, um, always will be, just by pure reasons of geography and history. And the challenge is for Australians to understand the incredible capacities and resilience and innovation that's evident in the Pacific. People are not sitting around saying, oh, please come and help us. They're leveraging what little political diplomatic cultural power they have to work with a range of partners to address problems that they can't address themselves. And that's that collective thing we spoke about. And this is a really interesting challenge for the world. How much are people going to hunker down within their national borders and say, forget everyone else? And I think this is a real part of the debate in Australia. Are we going to be like a lot of places that are just going to retreat and put up borders and not address the development challenges, the human challenges, the issues of conflict and violence and issues of climate change that affect neighbouring countries. We live in a part of the world where there are many developing countries on our borders. And are we going to hunker down or are we going to have an internationalist response to what is a global challenge? I think it's clear that we need an international response. You know, we need to be thinking as we develop uh, responses to the challenge within Australia. So we need to do it regionally as well
1: thank you so much Nick
4: thank you as always
1: journalist and researcher Nick McClellan